G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan a hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel. The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting. Well, good evening, gents. I hope you guys are well. Um, Ian, doing well? I am well, thank you. It's just uh, still chatting away on my mobile. <laughs> <laughs> Young so, people yeah, today. Yeah, so I guess this is just a quick recap. Um, obviously, we've come to the end of the Red Deer Roar and the and the fellow the fellow buck rat rut, should I say? Um, I guess for Ian and myself, it probably wasn't the most successful year that we've we've had of late. But Mark, I know you've you've had some you good just, opportunities. You, you just stole my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna ask, who shot a deer? Oh right. Yeah, well, I shot one. Did, but you didn't recover it. I didn't recover it. And I'll challenge your, your comment there for a second. I, well, whether I should challenge it or somebody else did. I had um, Jace on the phone today, Jace Roberts. Mm-hmm. We interviewed a while back. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, he is um, always very focused on the rut period, given he lives in the middle of um, Bellow Town. And the temperatures just have, haven't dropped below mm-hmm. 10 consistently. He's had a couple of cold days, but that's about it. He said, but last night was the first cooler night that was almost frostworthy in, in the Stanthorpe region. Uh, and he was out and the bucks started going off. Really? Yeah. Just, just Late. Yeah, well, they, had them, they had them go off four weeks ago and then only for three or four days and then they just shut down. And yeah, last night off they went again. So was it over? Well, we should be a, heading back. <laughs> this is an interesting thing, isn't it? Yeah. What actually makes them go into the period? This, why now, and what is it? So. Well, is it a, is it the second cycle of the does potentially? It could be, yeah, because obviously the bucks are going only going to kick off if the does come in in season. Mm. Um, so yes, it's been a very mild autumn so far. We haven't had really any, mild. any cool evenings down here in Brizzy. I don't know about you up there, but. Um, it's no, very we're, we're in we're in eleven to twelve overnight, which is very warm for this time of year. I mean, even uh, we were late into Nundal with the rut, and you know we've had snow there earlier in the year than that. We've had <clears throat> horrible frosts and cold in that area, which is what makes it so great. But I think we had one frosty morning the entire trip, just just mm. bizarre. Well, yeah, I mean, you because you guys had that frost. I think it was the day the day that I arrived, or the mm. day before I arrived. But otherwise, it, yeah, I mean, look, we had single digits in the evening, but it certainly was very mild. It's the mildest I've ever had at Nundal. Um, mm. It was wet, but you come to expect that at Nundal. Um, but yeah, it wasn't cold. It was it was quite comfortable, to be honest. It was quite. I actually wished it was a little bit cooler. Um, it's kind of what you go there for is that cool cold sitting around fire. Mm. Yeah, so anyway, there's supposed to be the end of the rut and raw period, but I think it might kick on. Um, whether we can get any action on that, I'm not sure, but we'll see. 
I know that where I was, it fell off very quickly from, um, well, it would have been two exactly two weeks from the 31st of March. I was up the second time I was up there and it felt that it, it disappeared. Um, I heard a couple in the distance, um, but it was all over with. Um, mm. And I've heard them right till the end of April. And in fact, I think I've heard them in May and I've actually got it on video. I have to check what date. There was one young stag still prancing around and barking and carrying on. I've got him on video and that was pretty late on. Mm. Yeah, because I mean, I was I was week three of the of the rule, which was the 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 tenth or the eleventh of April that week, um, and it was very quiet, very very quiet. There was a few stags roaring, but it was uh, obviously this is up in the Brisbane Valley, um, but it was very quiet. Um, the stags were holed up on their ledges, just giving a couple of roars in the evening or <clears throat> in the morning, but they weren't they weren't going off. Not what I expected them to be doing. Um, so yeah, it, it seems to start a little bit earlier this year and, and finish quite quite quickly. Obviously, it's very cyclical with the, with the does when they come in. Obviously, they're going to come into season over that. I think it's the 21, 21 day period, um, but or twenty eight day period. Um, but it just seemed to be coming coming quickly and then over and done with. Um, up where I was, I was hunting the reds. Yeah, it was very quiet. Um, some of the this really steep thick country was was holding some some stags but very quiet not what i expected at all yeah just looked at the calendar it was the 14th of april it was, it was basically all quiet that's when i shot that um and that that those the stag i shot he was with three other stags too and i i, I i'm assuming they were the not yet and never were going to be <laughs> that were rafted up together yeah, so that's the same week that I was out, that 11th yeah. to the to the 14th yeah. is the week that I was out. Um, and very quiet, not much roaring at all. Mm. I, I think the weather has more to do with their, and this is purely observational, has more to do with their activity rather than the actual rut itself. So it's it has something to do with how active they are rather than the fact that they are or they not, because that's a... That's a, uh, you know, that's a control by, you know, the hinds. But how how active the stags are, I think, is, is some, the weather has some effect on their, act, you know, how active they are. Where I am, where I hunt, basically it's almost like it's a morning block. Um, if you're not onto the deer pretty early, then you're not likely to take one that day. And that's because they just move away from the the road and up into the into the hill country and they hold up in the hill and i think that's got a lot to do with pressure mm. that just seems to be the that just seems what they do there so i know that if i'm going to take an animal on that block i usually take it early with the exception being the pig the pig that i shot on that block um i shot it late in the afternoon and it was stinking hot but it, it was a pig so it was doing what pigs do which was coming away from water after being on water all day Hmm. And how um, different was this block uh, this year compared to last? Did you pick up any new habits or movements or well, any new tricks from, you know, because you haven't had the – how long have you had this block? No, well, I, have, I haven't. This is the first time I actually hunted it during the raw. So, right. so I I picked up the block um, the year before, before the raw, 
and I managed to get up there before the roar. But then we were away. From, I was away with the family, so I didn't. I didn't get up there. And then I went in the uh, after. And as I said, I had that. I had an encounter with the. Uh, I thought, oh well, it's all over. And it's strange. It was all up. And in the afternoon, I heard this. What's going on? So I, f- I followed the sound, and sure enough, there was a young stag who was carrying on. The block that I hunt up there doesn't seem to hold a lot of stags. It's um, but it holds a very good number of hinds, and so this particular rule really started for me in early February when I went up and put the cameras up first time. So you know I had the opportunity to actually do some scouting. So I went up and put the cameras up. Then we had the great flood, which you know I thought well, and one of one of my cameras was um, I didn't lose it, but it was kind of hanging on by by the. Yeah, that was a new video. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a great flood. So that kind of, and that changed everything because, and one of the things it did was it created wallows. So um, there was a really active wallow, but only, that was only because of that, that flood water created that wallow. And also what's happened is the grass has grown so well over the last oh, yeah. two seasons, it's starting to get that where it clumps on itself. So it dies off and regrows. So it's actually getting thicker and thicker. And of course they're worried about what fire, fire season is going to be like up there. So because there's so much fuel on the ground. So even with that scout, I still didn't see really any stags. I saw one. I had one small spiker on camera. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. They're not here. Okay. I thought they'd be in by, you know, at least might see them by February. No. Um, But got up there in the end of um, March, that the 31st, and that was the best roar on any block I'd ever been to. They were just, it was like crazy. They were just everywhere. And yeah, no, the uh, you were giggling on the video. <laughs> yeah, it's going. Oh, it's what I'm going to do. They're, they're just everywhere, you know. I was like, right, and I, I decided I didn't want to shoot them. I thought I'm going to take lots of film here today because they were just every. Like, I'd literally walk along and kind of go, "That's oh, one over there. It's one over there. It's one over there. Oh, three over there." And so, and um, was it? So, um, uh, so that was, you know, that's so it went from you know famine to feast. And on the 14th of April, they'd stopped roaring, but there were still stags about. And I didn't bother to go after the good double five. I decided, no, I won't do that. I know where he, where he's, um, where he is, because I could, I think I could hear him. I know where he is. I don't want to shoot him because last time it was a pretty crappy shot, and I, you know, I'm pretty sure he'd be in the same position, and I wouldn't want to risk a good shot on something like that. So I, I played a percentage and said, and the other thing is too, because, you know, the property owner kind of said, got to shoot something. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, sure. So, um, so yeah, that was it. So that, so I went for a cull, but um, not, you know, the quality of deer up there isn't that great. But then again, it's Brisbane Valley and it just... It could produce know, anything. It can produce anything, and the other thing is, it's, it's, it, it, it's a it's name. It's it's you know that road. Unfortunately, is 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 like one of you know one of those echo carnivals with the ducks going along on the conveyor belt type thing, and every kid's got a BB gun on the footpath. But unfortunately, it's, they're not on the footpath, and they haven't got BB guns. But it's about the same amount of lead through the air. So you know it happens. Yeah, you, know, you just hear it all the time. You can hear shooting off in the you know in the wrong places. It's just. It's just the, the way it is up there, unfortunately. Mm. So you, 
saying seeing something oh I'll let that you know let it go let it grow is, is often let it go get shot by someone else <laughs> for, you know, next day bang dead on the ground quite often yeah absolutely. That's right. I mean so, for me yeah so I was hunting not far from you you obviously you're at the bottom of the range I was more up the valley higher up uh, I was on the same block as I was last year's rule um, and it was a huge change in in condition so last year was a little bit drier obviously we've had a lot of rain um, there was a lot of water on the ground. That was one of the observations that I had. So a lot of the gullies that I was, that I stalked in last year when I went down this year were very wet underfoot. So, you know, a lot of those gullies are drainage systems that were mm. very wet. And I, I, I don't think the deer like getting their feet all that wet um, because the gullies that I expected to see deer in, just they weren't in there. Um, they were, the deer were sitting higher up for me. They were staying out of that wet. They didn't have to travel for water. Um, I noticed a lot of wallows on some of the creek lines or, or some of those drainage lines, but um, yeah, the amount of feed and the amount of water around was was ridiculous. And I think that's a big difference from from 12 months ago. Was and that that was from my observation. So gullies I expected to see deer in. There weren't any deer, um, and not much sign down in the bottom of the gullies, but certainly higher up. Mm. Like that roughy double five I shot out of there last year, which is just on the wall behind me, oh, in front of me here. That was actually in winter. I shot that in June, July, and I'm kind of thinking if I'm lucky, I might that might happen again this year. Well, the stags have got to feed up post rut and you know get their condition back up. So I know a lot of people say they prefer hunting reds post rut or post raw because you know they their conditions a little bit better and they're out feeding a lot more because they've got to try and get a bit yeah. more um, a bit more conditioning on. So I'm hoping to head up pretty soon. See if I can grab a a calf dag. Just actually to meet at the moment. So see what we can find um, in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Well, the best deer I had the opportunity to take um, was a good double six up in the Mary Valley, but he'd split one side fighting. So he was uh, he had you know it, it was down. It it actually split it. So the split was like a vertical split in um, in the right hand antler. So I let him go, but he was a proper double six. And he, but his body condition was, he, you know, he looked terrible. Mm. It looked like he'd been fighting for four weeks straight you know, and not eating and doing it. He looked exactly what you would expect. So, yeah, he looked like a guy who spent, you know, four weeks in the pub trying to impress the girls. So <laughs> it's a bit beraggled and a bit bashed up. Needed a shave and a clean up and stuff <laughs> like that, you know. But um, so yeah, unfortunately, I, I didn't take him. Uh, I do, I didn't take him. I didn't want to take him because he was, he was split. But I never saw him again up there. But again, that was the other problem too. You know, that he was in that area where, unfortunately, um, they can they can get taken by some, if they get down near the road. So, but yeah, that idea of waiting till after the rut is not a bad idea. I mean, um, our friend in New Zealand with the dogs, uh, he. Paul, yeah, that's right. He tended to, he he liked that approach too. I think. Yeah, I think Paul uh, tends to hunt for meat more than he does yeah. for, for stags, yeah. and certainly the Kaimais, where where Paul is, uh, aren't renowned to have good quality heads come out of. Mm. Um, you know, a typical Kaimai stag is often a bit of a munter, um, but like any area, you know, it can be, you know, it can throw a freakish, amazing head at the same time, and you see those pop up from time to time, but. Yeah, that's just his preference. Uh, we're trying to trying to get eyes on, 
you know, a, a beautiful stag, if nothing else. Um, it's nice to see them in the bush. Um, I think if you're around them a lot and, and he's he's spent his life in the bush, so he's seen a lot, um, it's less of a priority for him, but it's uh, each to their own. Eh? And speaking of that, there is this rumour of a big one up there near Somerset. I still yet to get a photo of that one. I'm, I'm trying to find it. Yeah. Well, supposedly there's a good one running around. Well, there was a good one running around Som Somerset, and it didn't have a lead around its neck, and it didn't answer to Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, uh, so um, that good stuff aside, what new gear did you have out this year? Do you have anything on trial or, or loan or, or anything that you were reviewing at the time you were going through the raw? Uh, for me, yeah. Well, the the... The newest bit of kit was the rifle. Oh, that worked. What else? So have? yeah, so <laughs> I carried the, the the new rifle through both hunts, um, and I carried a camera for the first time through both hunts. And if you've seen part two, you realised I made a mistake with the camera. It was got you know. Won't be your last. <laughs> it just got too. So I jammed myself into this fence because of the grass and it was a perfect shooting position, but I didn't realise I just ever so gently hit the camera. <laughs> so that was new. So, yeah, so running, you know, having the camera and the tripod, that that, that was a pretty new experience. And There's an absolute discipline behind it, though. Yeah, there is. You've got to change your mind. The, yeah. the, the, the deer that I uh, shot and lost, like I had three cameras on that deer. Not one yeah. of them was running. Oh, okay. I, because you know, action happens so fast sometimes. Yeah. The one yeah. on the rifle, the one on my chest, and and my other camera, they just don't even get looking, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, and, yeah know, I didn't that's have just, the, just pure discipline. I didn't have the GoPro going, but I, I don't tend to use a GoPro I, as much. I use it for more, you know, what they you know, what they call what B-roll footage. So basically, stuff like that. I'd actually like to try and get it. So especially for the videos, so people can see not only what I'm shooting at, but taking the shot. So I'm trying to work on that. So really the two big pieces of kit um, were the camera um, uh, and the rifle. Rifle uh, performed exceptionally well. It's a tack driver. And, of course, I was shooting um, the new Seiko ammo too. Hmm. Which ones? Uh, I'm shooting the 150 grain soft points out of the 308. Um, fine, they're pretty devastating. And, I mean, that thing, those... Um, Ticker CTRs, they're attack drivers out of the box. Mm. They're ridiculous. I mean, I reviewed one back in 2018, and at the time, I said, you know, I kind of pitched this idea. I said, oh, look, can I review it hunting? And they went, yeah, yeah, sure, why not? And I said, can I take it for 10 day hunting? And they went, uh, okay. So I took it to the uh, fellow block down in um, below Tamworth, and then we cut across. The, to um, a state forest near Wewa and then into the Pilliga over 10 days. So, and I shot a um, pig or pigs, uh, one good goat, and a couple of deer with it, and they attack driver. So, it, you know, I, I expected it was going to be a good straight shooting platform to start with. So, and it is. So, I, I necked that um, pole stag. So, I felt confident that I could neck it. But I was in within, well, just over 100 yards. And I was on a, I was a you know, they had the rifle sit uh, on, a, on a fence post and I'm in the, you know, the corner post, the strainer post. 
and I was I was jammed up in that pretty comfortably too. So it wasn't a hard shot by any means. And that particular deer was just came out and he was just plodding along, eating, plodding, eating, and he was the one facing downhill. And I I tend to like shooting deer who are facing downhill. I'm going to make that call based on where I've got to get them to. No, I like to wait. If I've got a chance, I'll wait from the point downhill because I'll. That's you know they won't turn. Um, if I if they see if I see them going straight downhill, I know I've hit them, hit them well. Yeah, they um, don't usually run uphill once you've hit them. Well, all animals try to run uphill, I think. So if they can't, you know that's it. You got them. Mm, interesting, so, um, Jono. Any new gear on the trip? So for me, um, post us Severn chap, I invested in a new pack, um, slightly uh, bigger pack. Yes, fair enough. Malibu so, Barbie. Malibu yeah, Barbie yeah, upgrades. That's it. <laughs> Straight so, to the. Um, so I invest. I actually copied you, Mark. Uh, thanks for the uh, the recommendation. I got that QU. Um, is it the Venture twenty three hundred pack? Um, yes. The one that you carry. I've I, I invested in that one. Beautiful pack. Absolutely love it. It's um, obviously a lot bigger than the the other one that I was carrying. I could fit more into it. Um, and so comfortable. I agree completely with the the torso length. Um, so the the Hunter's Element one, and I'm not dissing Hunter's Element. The one that I've got has done hundreds and hundreds of you know k's and walks and hunts with me. Um, and it's a great little day pack or half day pack if you're hunting out of the truck. But that QU one that I've got, I loaded that thing up with you know water and food, and I had extra. I was carrying you know filming filming um, kit. I, I managed to fit in now a, a first aid kit which I never used to carry because I didn't have space for it, but now I can fit it in. Um, hook that thing up and and it just fits me perfectly. It sits nicely on the hips. Um, you know, I did some big some big walks up some big hills and down some big hills, and um, I got absolutely rained on and soaked. But the pack stayed the the contents of the pack stayed dried because it's actually a waterproof pack. It's got the yes of it, which is awesome. So I didn't have to deploy a you know like a a a, a, a bivy pack or something like that over it a bivy cover. Um, it, it, all my content stayed dry, so that pack was was awesome. Um, I highly recommend it. Um, made for a much more enjoyable day on the hill. Um, and the other thing I was carrying this time around was because I had the space now to carry it was also one of the Zolio satellite messengers. So I invested in one of those because I didn't have a a PLB, um, the the locator beacon, just in case something happened. You know, if I fell down a hill and broke my leg or got bitten by a snake, um, I wanted something that I could that I could you know, deploy in an emergency and, and get emergency services to come and help me. Um, so I did a bit of research and instead of just going for the pure PLB, which has that single function, um, I went for the Zolio so that I can use the satellite messaging services and actually, you know, stay in touch with the family while I was away, which they are hugely appreciative of. Um, so I thought that was a great piece of kit. Um, but those are the only real, you know, two new pieces of kit for me. Um, and yeah, highly recommend both of them. Hmm. The other thing I did carry was that um, the Outdoor Edge um, Everyday Carry, the Edge Razor Light. So, which is one of those. Um, so it's a folding knife, but it uses the re the replacement, the scalpel style blades. So, um, and it's uh, it's the Everyday Carry one. So it's their, I think it's their base model in terms of that. So it's just a simple um, synthetic. Uh, I suppose you'd call them scales, um, uh, folding knife. I think it's about a three-inch blade, maybe three-and-a-half-inch, 
um, but it uses the replacement um, scalpel style blades. But it's they're not like a scalpel. They're they're more of a drop point shaped blade. So they're a bit bigger. So they got a bit of a belly in them. Um, and I actually use that to break up the deer. And I found that um, what I liked about it was it, because it was bigger. One, it was more comfortable to, to hold rather than I've got one of the little Havilons. Um, it was more comfortable that the other thing too, because the blade actually has got a belly and some length to it, it doesn't punch as much when you, when you're skinning, you know, it actually, you don't kind of, I found, and maybe it's because I'm not real good at using the, the Havilon. I found that they tend to kind of punch up a little bit when you're skinning with them because mm. there's such a small contact area, whereas this thing, you could actually use it more like a knife so i use that was another thing that i've, I've carried and i quite like that i've actually that's one of the things i've been as always thinking about my um you know the the blade clip that i've kit that i take with me when i'm for meat work and that that the little havlon and uh a small fixed blade how did the um the blade hold up it it was really good until it hit bone that went it blunted really quick and I wouldn't mind doing a review on it, but one of the things that I did realize is um, you have to be incredibly careful um, with those blades once you um, change them over. Because, you know, you're, you know, you're out in the scrub and you've got lots of stuff going on. You just don't want to leave that thing on the ground. You don't want to leave a three and a half inch razor blade laying on the ground. Yeah. So you go, oh, oh, look at that, straight through my boot. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, you, I, I actually, you know, thought, where am I going to put this thing? When I, because in it, the one thing, I, another thing I liked about it too was it's really quite easy to change out. It's actually like a push button change out. It doesn't require that like blade flexing system. It's a so you can change it pretty easily um, and safely with your hands. But I thought, okay, what am I going to do with this thing? I've got this thing. It's you know, it's now exposed. It's open. Where am I going to put this thing down? So I really had to think about that because you know, you know, it's like you've got all these lots of things on the go when you when you're yeah. skinning yeah. in the field. And uh, yeah, that was one of the things I thought you almost need like some kind of little um disposable unit. The shops, the but, shop box type thing. Yeah, yeah, like a sharp box. You can just stick yeah. it in. And go, okay, that's it. Because that, that's the one thing I didn't, I thought, you know, hang on, this thing could, you know, you could just reach down to grab something and go, oh, there you go. I found it. I know <laughs> a guy, I know a guy that, I, that, I, that I've hunted with before. I think I've mentioned it before. Uh, we were hunting at Severn and um, I, I said it would be really good if we had something to hoist this animal up on and he pulled a block and tackle out of his pack. Uh, he's the only guy that I know that might also carry a sharps box with him whilst hunting. Uh, it's not exactly the ideal thing to be lugging around, but get it. You got to be careful. I think yeah. that they might make one. Like, and obviously, it's not like you know a it's sharps not box, big... yeah. <laughs> like just sharps box. But it's 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 Made sharps of steel. Box. <laughs> That's right. But it's like I think they do it's make a little one. disposable thing. Yeah. Because the thing is, if you perfect. if you leave that loose and you're you know you put it in your pocket and you forget about it, and you stick your hand oh, in your pocket. Next thing you know, it. you're you're, you're off it. to emergency. Yeah, so there's there's too it. many safe places to put it, are there? That's yeah. it. Knives yeah. and hunting are one of the like you got to have them, but man, they can cause you some grief. Yeah, yeah I remember I was at Nando, and there was a shot a pig. Strange enough, and I was down there and I was skinning out the skull at around the campfire. 
and there was a guy i think he used to come up from musclebrook or something like that he was a he was a guy he used to come up uh, he was a you know new south welshman he used to come up just for the the ada camp and he had his son with him his son was only five or six or maybe a little bit older at the time and he's he, i believe that he came up every year and i was skinning out this skull and i was talking to his son while i was doing it. i was telling him and then i, I hit my I hit my finger and i went okay just stay here young fella <laughs> yep well i wander over here and just fix this up yeah i was like got myself and i mean and that that you know that was with a knife which was sharp but those even a, a you know relatively blunted blade would be still pretty lethal if you mm. if you if it caught you well i guess that kind of leads us into nundal in because obviously we went down for for the rut um mm. the, the only thing that made me bleed on that was the leeches um <laughs> yeah well, they were around they weren't they weren't too bad but they were certainly there some of the yeah. guys got belted yeah. by them but well yeah good old tim he he was living with them wasn't he mm. oh yeah yeah he could see them coming for him but uh so, yeah look it was an interesting time chasing leeches away but i guess i mean we were down Obviously, you were there longer than I was, but we were there for the end of the for the for the fellow rut. Did you hear any croaking while you were there, or did, do you think we were too late? Oh, uh, again, I don't know if we were too late or too early. You know, mm. it's a difficult one given what we're hearing now, and yeah, you know, and and how do you classify the rut? Because you know, I'm a pretty firm believer that those animals will will vocalise to call those girls in but if there aren't you know huge numbers or if there's not a whole lot of competition and they don't need to be making a lot of noise i'm not sure that they do um and then they might do that for a period of time but the rut goes for you know six or so weeks that first cycle and they only ever really vocalize for a couple of weeks so that rut's still going on it's still happening it's just it's just they're quiet and it makes them harder to find yeah um, so, no, I think we were there at a good time. Did I hear croaking? Oh, I'm going to say I may have. Um, you know, off in the distance there, you kind of really hope that that's what you heard. Um, that might have been, but, might have been but, Trevor snoring. Yeah, it could have been. Yeah, it could have been any one of you. Um, I had nothing in close that was croaking like I've seen there before. Um, I had somebody contact me three or four days before we left, and they'd been there for a week and he said they only started croaking the day before he left um you know but we were then there two or three days later and we weren't hearing a whole lot uh, and one of the other guys heard heard a bit of croaking on one of the foggy cold mornings but you know not a huge amount because we bumped into that guy on the my first afternoon that was the thursday afternoon um at the bottom of hanging rock and he was saying he had shot that buck i think two weeks prior and they were yeah. and he, yeah, he he heard him croaking so yeah, look, I think they they were definitely croaking. Whether or not they were fired up and they come back on, I've just looked at the weather and this weekend it's going to be, you know, below freezing there. So maybe that's going to kick things off oh, again. This is what so, I think too. Uh, you've, yeah. The season's been really funny. There's so much heat left in the day still, and mm. we were there when we were there walking through. There, I was getting sunburned, mm. you know, in the middle of the day, and it's just not normal for that time of year in that in that part of the world. So. I don't know, it's a difficult one, but it was a great time. We had uh, around 15 fellas come through camp over the period of the week. Some left early, some came later. Um, we had some new hunters, which was really fun. 
Um, you know, so they were just soaking up as much information as they possibly could. And we were giving them some really good instruction. Um, although some of them came back carved up completely. One of the fellas, Frank, we know Frank, Frank's legs were sliced up like he'd been to a butcher shop. He went to the Black, Blackberry, was he? Oh, yeah, he got it. it was like, like seriously carved up his legs. Um, and uh, <laughs> he showed me where he went. He went down the other side of the ridge to what I told him. He just got the directions wrong. So we sent him back again the other day. So he may not have thought that I was giving him very good direction. But one of the guys that, that came down, I don't think he's shot. I, I can't remember whether he said he'd shot a deer before. I'm pretty sure he said he hadn't. He was a bow hunter. And he was tackling deer hunting with a bow in State Forester as his sort of first go at it. And, I mean, hats off to him. I mean, he knew mm. it was a challenge. But he had all the patience in the world and he listened to all of the instruction that, you know, we sort of gave him. And the first instruction we had, because he was going to be there for the whole period of time, he had a lot of days to, to, to work with. So, you know, we, um, we described what scrapes would look like. And we sent him out and gave him a bit of an idea where we thought we might find scrapes in certain areas. You know, and that, that instruction was if, you, you know, you want to get down into a creek, you want to sort of come up a terrace layer, go along that contour, see if you can find a scrape. If you're not finding them, drop down a little bit or go up a little bit more. Try and find a scrape and then move around that same contour line and you'll find three or four more probably of the same buck. Uh, and he came back after his first hunt and he's got his camera around and showing me photos. I'm like, man, they are the best scrapes I've seen for so long. Perfectly clear, big scrapes. There was one here. There was one 40 metres away. There was another one 100 metres away. And it was exactly what we said it would look like. And like, for someone who's providing a bit of instruction, for them to come back after one day and say, I found what you said to go and look for, unreal. So all he had to do now was sit over those scrapes morning and evening for as long as he possibly could, make himself comfortable, cut himself a track in so that he could go in without leaving scent everywhere and making a lot of noise and sit over those scrapes and hope that animals came in. And over his period of time there for seven days, he had seven deer come into those scrapes, all of which were just outside his bow range. And he had enough self-control not to just fire off a 50-meter shot and hope, which was fantastic. So it was great as a you know someone who was trying to give a bit of instruction for him to have an experience like that. Yes, he's disappointed he didn't take an animal, but you know he, he would have been the most successful hunter on the trip. Probably the volume of animals he saw just by being patient like that, which was... Really cool to see. Anyone with a rifle down there would have taken an animal home, by the sounds of it, um, well, if well, they look, had went, the same yeah. patience. I went in I went in on the last morning to and sat over that scrape with him. Um, it was a beautiful gully, absolutely mm -hmm. gu beautiful gully. He And I said, you know, how did you approach this? What happened? And he told me what he did and the patience that he showed and the determination that he, he showed to find those scrapes, the way he – found this gully and then worked that gully to find them was was incredible. Like it shows real determination. We sat over that on that last morning to see if a, if a doe would come in. Unfortunately, it didn't. Um, but yeah, he showed absolute, the patience that he showed sitting over that scrape every single day um, mm. to see those deer. I mean, if you had a rifle, you could have shot every single deer that came in. Um, but yeah, and that, was, that just shows the determination that he's got to, and self-control as well, because I don't know if if I could have. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I've, I've I've shot a bow before. I'm not very accurate with one, but I think he's a pretty good shot. But to know he's only, you know, he's only a year into his bow journey. Oh, okay. Got, yeah, 
but he he can he can maintain that self control and say right that's I'm not comfortable having the shot I'm gonna wait that's just that shows yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah. a that's a true hunter there absolutely and he he will go away from uh, and and this fellow's name's Dave so Dave yes we're talking about you once you're watching this um, he he had an experience that most people don't get. You know, being able to go into state forests like that and find their habitat and see them come in day after day after day, what a great experience for Phil. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, he'll be hooked on that place. He'll be back there every year into the same gully, sitting over <laughs> the same scraps. You watch. Um, so I'm oh, glad you found out where they were, John. We'll, we'll uh, mark them on a map. I've got um, them so saved, mate. Don't, don't, don't worry about that. They're on my, on my app. So, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm I, driving I, past here in a few months. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just let us know where they are. So, um, you know, in that flavour, um, Tim... Tim came down. He's another bow hunter. Um, listened to the podcast. Um, was really keen to get involved, so he came and joined us down there, which was which was really cool. And um, we had a couple of good chats around the fire. And I gave him some scrape locations that I had from the year before. Uh, he'd never been to this spot before. I'm not even sure whether he'd public land hunted before. Can't remember. Doesn't matter. So I gave him a pinpoint on a map and a park. You know, 30 minutes away from where we were camped, 35 minutes. And uh, he came back after the first day having been within 50 metres of a nice buck with his bow and just sort of laying down on his back in the fern, hoping it was going to come his direction, but it didn't, and had the same experience with some some does as well, 50 metres away on that same area. So obviously they were coming into the scrapes and he was working that area. It was a really nice gully uh, from what I recall. I've got it on video finding those scrapes a couple of years back and it looks like those Bucks are coming back consistently and, and hanging around that area. So again, another bow hunter that's come into camp and, and got some instruction and gone and, and had a really cool experience. Again, no one took anything, which was a bit of a pity, but man, you're really giving yourself a challenge um, taking up bow hunting in public land. Um, not to say it can't be done. It's it's just a, a hell of a way to start, I think. So you guys didn't camp at Ponderosa, did you? Oh, we did. So Ponderosa, if you're coming in mm -hmm. from the the Walker side, is mm -hmm. is on the left hand side of the road. Yep, yep. When we arrived, it was full of campers for Easter. Oh, okay. So we camped in the in the uh, the reserve just across the road. Yeah, the, the no, the, not the, in Ponderosa yeah. Park, the old, but the you know, where, the, yeah. the where the mill site is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was actually really. Nice. I actually really like that camp spot. I thought it was really good. Oh, I I'm pretty sure I'll be back to that spot. It's got a couple of good picnic tables, which were really handy. Uh, it gets a lot more sun than Ponderosa because it doesn't have the pines above it. Mm. Um, and, you know, so the solar kept all our batteries topped up and those sorts of things, which was really handy. We're always chasing the sun in Ponderosa, um, so we didn't have that problem. Um, and there just happened to be a handy, you know, big pine deadfall that was there. We could just keep slicing up firewood, so it was pretty nice. Nice, easy drive in, drive out with the, oh, with yeah. the truck coming in. Yeah, it was. I thought it was an awesome little spot. I mean, I love Ponderosa. Um, I think it's a great spot. You've obviously got the ablutions, but it was a two-minute walk across the road if you needed to use them. Um, mm. I thought the campsite this year was was awesome. A yeah, good little yeah, setup as well. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically just on Nundle Forest Way, isn't it? You just come straight yeah, off the straight off the bitumen bitch. and just just keep driving. Depending on which way you come in, you just keep driving. You'll run into it. Yeah, you can't miss Ponderosa. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I I usually come in from the Nundle side. We, I, I used to, yeah. I yeah. Used to do that. You know, so I, I do the Walker way. I think that's a much nicer. Yeah, I think it, like, that's a, the last time I came home. I came back that way, and other than a couple of things on the way home, yeah, it was a much, much. It was a better drive, and it felt like you were kind of going the right direction. 
yeah yeah that's right when you come in from the you know new england from just before tamworth there you kind of think oh nundle's there but it's actually a fair drive in up past the well, I think the issue we had previously was in, in Nundle itself, or the last time I was there, you couldn't get fuel. That was a big issue. You had to go all the way to Tamworth to get fuel. Um, so to come in via Walker, fill up, then, you know, and then it's not too far. It's probably, what, maybe 45 minutes to an hour so. from Walker into the forest? Well, Walker's uh, 30, 30 minutes, 40 minutes to enter the forest. That's right, and to that gate. Five, then yeah. you're 30, yeah. 35 k's down the dirt. Yep. That's right. But in, in, in Walker, you've got there's an IGA, there's a bakery that you can fill up and fuel, get ice. You can do there's a bottle, you can do whatever you want. Whereas I know the last time I was in Nundal, there was no fuel, so you had to go to to Tamworth or to Walker yeah. to get yep. fuel. So, yep. um, and that's that's why I went that way. The first time I ever went there, I went via Tamworth and then to Nundal, um, and just found it so much longer. I prefer the other way. So mm-hmm. you're coming. You said you're coming through Yarella, don't you? Yarella and Walker. Off. And I tell you what, on the way out this time. I stopped in Urella and the pie mechanic. Pie mechanic. Oh, the pie mechanic. Oh. That was that was a good part, mate. Oh. Told you. Told I'll you. What, I had the um the venison, bacon, and red wine. And yes. Oh. Yes. Oh. I, I can't believe you got that because I got the last four. No, I got no. I got I got one day. It was actually straight out the oven, and I had to drive for 15, 20 minutes before I could eat it because it was too yeah. hot to eat. It was beautiful. We walked in there and um, I asked. I was first in the line with the other boys behind me, and I asked for the venison pies, and uh, they got the scraps. They got something else. I can't remember what it was. But. What a good part. It used part. to be um, Hunter's Haven. Used to be in Yarrella. It's Yeah, it's yeah. gone unfortunately. Um, and every year we go down. I used to buy clothes from there, you know, because mm-hmm. they had they had all the winter range of um, things like you know uh, Hunter's Element and Stony Creek, all the winter range. Mm-hmm. Both both my my jackets came from there, and I used to run up a couple of pairs of boots. You know, they're the retail outlet for um, the camo warehouse. Yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. But yeah. they were literally in Yarella. so because yeah. you know, on family road trips, we'd go because we we quite like Yarella. Yeah, it's a nice spot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we stopped there. You know, it's one of the and you know the boys up run up and down the street, and I'd sit outside the pie mechanics and have a pie, and you know walk around and there's a really interesting guy across the road who makes uh it's that model shop don't know next time you're in there across the road there's a shop that's got like you know scale models in the window but what he is he's uh i've read about him he's uh he he they're all one-offs you know like you know you know, when the, you know, a company wants to give, you know, a, the president or something like that, a model of a ship or something like that, they're trying to basically, you know, sell or positioning. He makes, that's what he makes. He makes those things. So he makes these models from scratch um, of, you know, ships and tanks and all that stuff. And, it, you know, because his market's worldwide and everyone comes to him, he, he's just in the main street of Urella there. Mm. I don't know, it's the same. So, yeah. Not a bad place to stop. It's not um, down at all. As far as Nundle and Hanging Rock and, and Tuggalo goes, it, it was in awesome condition. Like the the park after the fires has come back. It is there is so much feed. You know, yeah. even yeah. in the pines, yeah. you're looking through the pines. There's clover. There's grasses. There's there is so much food there. So you know, it's certainly come back. Um, that does make it challenging to hunt sometimes mm. because you're not finding pockets of feed where animals are going to. 
I don't get the feeling they need to be going on to pasture-improved country over the farmers anymore. Oh. So the, the animals, are they, they seem to have dispersed during the fires further down towards uh, Tuggalo, I felt. Last mm. time, there was a lot more animals down that way. Even this time, the further sort of that direction we went, the more animals that were found. Um, you know, I've been years there where I've seen quite a few animals. I saw a big group of, of deer um, running from the farmer's land into the bush under lights. So there was still a good mob of fallow that were coming through into Hanging Rock there. But um, I didn't see as many numbers during the day as usual. But everybody saw deer, except for one fella. Everybody was seeing deer. So they were there. I just, you know, hunting pressure is hunting pressure. And uh, it's difficult to, to find their locations when they're not vocal. Uh, but, you know, I think if you spend a bit of time there, you're going to crack the code there a little bit. Um, I got onto one hind. Uh, it's a confession video that I've got that might get up on the internet sometime soon. But I just, I don't, I still don't know what happened. Um, it was well and truly shot. It, you know, it, it arched up like it had been hit in the spine. It fell over backwards into the fern. I didn't pay any more attention to it because it was dead. And by the time I got around to where it had fallen, it was, it was gone. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I can't even think about what might have happened. I, I just don't get it. So um, that one will haunt me for a while. Um, and then um, on one of the last days uh, before we headed out, I, I decided to hunt a bit of new country and I saw a, a really nice buck. Uh, but again, it was on the move. It was basically a, its butt was facing me as it was going up a, a ridge yeah. out of the bracken fern and I don't, I don't take those sorts of shots. So it got away, but it was it was nice to see a good quality buck at least once during the week. So it was great. It was a really good trip. And the camaraderie was great. Um, a really good group of guys. Um, some, you know, Pat came from South Australia. You know, we had a um, fellow from Victoria. We had a number from New South Wales and some from Queensland, of course. And, uh, yeah, it was just a really good group. So looking forward to hosting that one another time. Yeah, uh, so impressed by the, you know, coming from South Australia. Yeah. It's amazing, huh? That it's is that, that's yeah. dedication. So, yeah, so, I guess. Uh, sorry, I was going to say, yeah, from a from a forest perspective, I haven't been there in, I think, twenty eighteen. Maybe was the last time I was there. Four years, um, and to see, obviously, since then there's been the fires, um, but to see how the forest is just continually evolving and changing. I mean, I, I guess you just always think it's going to stay the same, but obviously the trees are growing and things are getting cut down. There's, you know, there's logging taking place. I, I took a drive, I think it was on the Saturday morning, I think, where I, where I, you know, hunted previously and it was just this open clearing now, whereas before it was a beautiful section of, of pines. Um, so yeah, the, the, the forest is continually evolving and changing. I think it really shows the importance of, um, of doing e-scouting and scouting before you go is understanding the areas, what's changed, where you can hunt, where you can't hunt, because it's it's always changing. Um, but it was great to see that the forest looking so healthy. There was food everywhere. As you said, the clover was just everywhere. Um, it was it, the forest was in great condition. Um, yeah, look, it was it was awesome to go back. Really glad I went down. Well, we are. You know, this is what the second serious year of rain. So. We've got rain on rain, so yeah, it's going to recover. Yeah, two years of you know good, as you say, good rain. Um, that that drought was pretty devastating. Plus the fires were very devastating, you know, mm. down in that area. Um, so to see it bounce back like it has, I think it's awesome. 
um, it's really, really good. Good to see. It's made hunting a lot harder, but it's it's good for the good for the forest, good for the ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. There was there was certainly, you know, the number of kangaroos and wallabies around was unbelievable. So wombats, <laughs> my wombats. god, wombats. Your dog was, was my uh, dog. I've but, never been able to train my dog away from wombats before because she's never had to encounter them. So she knows. Well, the first night we were there, you know, I was wandering back and and I was under I was under phone torchlight because I'd forgot my head torch, which was the dumbest move. Uh, and I could see she was mucking around doing something in front of me, and I walked up to her and she had a nose square up the clacker of a wombat. But I probably thought it was a fat staffy from back home, right? <laughs> um, anyway, this some wombat figured out what was going on. Off it went. But she was pretty curious, and I think pretty sure she took me to about a hundred wombat holes over the week. Yeah, rather than taking me on to deer, but you know. Well, that afternoon, we, that afternoon we were out. She certainly investigated a few. Oh, it was, she was annoying. Yes. Anyway, we, but it um, just it just shows you how healthy the forest is. If there's yeah. that number of wallabies, that number of roos, that number of wallabies, it it just shows that the health of that entire ecosystem that's in there, um, mm. which is good for deer at the end of the day. So, um, well, see, so I hunt a private block about an hour south of there. And, you know, we've hunted it for, I think this is, uh, will be our fifth year or fourth year, I can't remember, hunting there. And, yeah, and we were there in the first year. It was like, you know, it was like, oh, this is what this place looks like because it was the top of the drought. And it just year on year, it's just got lusher and lusher and lusher, and that's what it is. So that we're, we're, we're in the, the season of plenty for a while at least. And, you know, even if, things slow down this year though we've got this another weather event coming it'll carry over for a year or so until we have a, a fire that clears it all out so the deer population will, will will you know will respond accordingly and that's i think that's an important point that you made that one of the i suppose challenges of of abundance in the forest is that the animals don't have to they don't have to do anything you know they literally can kind of sit down in between a, a water hole and a patch of clover and kind of turn the head left to drink and turn the yeah. head right well, to eat and you know and that's we all saw they that, have to do we saw that in Savern, didn't we yeah the goats. they went traveling far they would literally there's feed there there's water there and i've got elevation i'm just going to go over to that's right. that's, that's it. why why move from here yeah. and you know from a point of view that every 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 single step requires energy why would they move if they if they're if they're protected, they've got cover, they've got comfort, and they've got food. Why they're like us, you know? Why get off the couch? If someone could bring it to you while you're sitting on the couch, you'll probably sit on the couch for a while. And so that's the thing. So I think that's a really important part. That yes, there's this. You know, we are what year two, maybe even nearly year three. And if you've driven down that way, you've you know you see how many of those grain silos are just overflowing, and those huge blue tarps. Everywhere we, where they we just, saw those on the way to the Pelago, didn't we? It was just it. every every silo was just had this huge just, storage outside. And that's of it. that's still going, you know. So that mm. it's just the production is out there because it's responding. Cattle, are, you know, a you know, a repop restocking. So you're going to get that kind of uh, you know abundance that's going to happen, but it changes behaviour. Mm -hmm. If you're used to hunting in dry country, you know, in a way, it's find water, find animals water everywhere well i know for instance the, the the red deer block that i that i'm that i hunt on um this past season pretty much every single hind had a fawn 
So because the quality of feed was there, there was water, there was feed, therefore it's abundance, you know, as you said. Yeah. Um, so every single, pretty much every single hind had a fawn, which made culling hinds difficult because you don't want to shoot them when they've got a dependent fawn. Um, but it shows you for the next, it's setting the next couple seasons up because, you know, next year or the end of this, you know, next year they're going to be, be able to reproduce and that's going to be then, you know, it's just going to exponentially grow. And if these conditions continue, then I think deer populations, pig populations are just really going to explode um, until the next drought happens. Who knows when that'll be, but. Because this block I was hunting where I hunt, there was, a, there was a slip, you know, and it's that beautiful red earth you can see it in the slip. But what it did was that slip created a creek that had water in it that I've never seen water in. And all of a sudden, and that created wallow. So there was there was literally one of the deer that I, um actually the that stag that came really close, if you look closely, he's got mud on it. He's just mm -hmm. come from the wallow. He's, he's using that wallow. So, you know, you're seeing that typical, you know, almost, um, you know, video quality, picturesque behaviours that, you know, we haven't seen for years because it's been too dry. Interesting enough, um, I was listening to another podcast on my way to and from Brisbane. I know it's just it's a strange thing. I'm a little, uh, someone I'm else's little podcast, I have to say I'm a little upset, but anyway, <laughs> continue. Continue. Um, the good... The good uh, feed and the good conditions that we're seeing this year, they were talking about how um, antler growth and quality of head goes back to the quality of mum's health when that mm. stag mm -hmm. was a fetus. Yep. A lot of people think good feed equals good antler growth next year because they've got lots of feed and lots of nutrition to grow antlers. But according to this, if, if mum is having a hard time when she's got you know, a young one, you know, as a, as a fetus through to birth, it is never going to amount to anything as a head. So, so mark this day in your calendar four years from now, and, and you'll be seeing cracking heads in there. You know, yeah. the recovery, the, the volumes, but the quality of head in four to five years' time, this will be yeah. the, the production of that, yeah. which yeah, I thought on. was a really good spin on the way this works. Yeah, well, it's genetics, isn't it? It's you know, and it's 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 genetics, and it's also you know, which is the same with you know, people. You know, they say that if the you know, if a a pregnant woman doesn't isn't you know isn't healthy, smokes whatever it is, that's going to have an effect on the child that is is very hard to overcome. So that's right. A a a a uh, a fawn born in this kind of time will 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 have a better have have a better be chance because the mother will be, the mother yeah. will be healthier the the father would have been healthier and so on and so forth. Like the biggest red deer I ever shot and with the biggest antlers um, was actually not particularly special antlers. They were just really big, and I always refer to him as you know he was Bubba. He was just this big. <laughs> Big deer with a big double four, but he was massive double four. Mm. It was just double four. So you That's know, the same as big. same as my one here. He was big yeah. and he had lots of food and he lots lots of weight and he'd put on and obviously that all that food and nutrition had you know it had equated into the you know the, the calcium build up and, and so on into his antlers. So it produced the stuff that make big antlers, but it didn't make them throw tops. 
or things like that. Well, yeah, if he doesn't have the genetics to do that, he's never. That's right. Do it. It's, 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 yeah, he, he was just help the animal, but he's not going to make his own points. That's right. He yeah. was just. He was just. He was just a big double four. And, you know, in a few more years, he would have gone backwards, and he would have just been a scraggly double four, and he, and that would have been it. So, that's it. It yeah, it's 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 very much in the big. And I mean, and that's why that the argument of of you know, letting them pass when they're younger, because what where the where they're heading, and where they may head is is you know there, there's there's value in that argument. There's certainly some logic in that argument as well. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's the right way to think until you end up on public land yeah uh and it is a very difficult um mantra to follow yeah because you can walk around those parks for seven days and that first deer that walks in front of you on day number five and a half you're not really going to take too much time assessing it no. well you, look, you, and, you're and going to call it success and and that was me on that last morning where i was heading back to camp and i saw a very young buck and it's like normally I would say I'm not going to shoot that he's too small, but it's the last morning and you have you know you haven't seen many deer that week. It's on public land. I'm going to try for that buck. The meat is meat, right? Yeah, that's right. Today, um, and I guess obviously I didn't get a shot at him, but this thought crosses your mind saying mm, I'm going to shoot that deer. Um, whereas usually you'd probably pass up on that smaller smaller buck. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was other danger would. I was having this com a similar conversation, and I think it was I think it was with Peter Ryan, and I hope I'm not quoting him or misquoting him. And he said said something like, you know, potential, yeah, potential dinner. So, and I quite <laughs> like that. You know, there, there, there comes a point where you go, okay, yeah, that deer's got potential. Yeah, it's got potential to be in your freezer and for you to eat it. So, you got to put that in context as well. Mm. Um, you can't pass up on everything because if you are passing up on everything, then you're not managing. There's no management in that either. Yeah. So yeah. It, you know it can't be a, it. It there has to be a, a point where you where you're interacting. And public land is different. You know the, there's an obligation. There's an obligation. There's yeah. an obligation on you to do something about that as well. And even and I and also most definitely for the the private land I hunt on, there's an obligation. You know, there's you're helping out. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not it's not a game park for for your amusement. You know, you're helping out. Um, it's just that generally, though not all uh, of the property owners I've encountered in the Brisbane Valley have some time for deer. They kind of don't, they're not like, you know, wild dogs and they don't, they're not in that level of, of, of uh, pest. They, they like them, they're... they like look at them, they don't mind them, but they also know that they compete with their stock and they can, they can do damage defences and stuff like that. So they've got a kind of very, you know, practical viewpoint on them. You know, you thin them out, knock a few over, makes things a bit easier. I haven't really met any landowners up there who say, you know, shoot them all. And I guess that kind of leads into the conversation around that, that deer management, quality deer management, do you shoot everything as we do on public land and, and that's what the mantra is, or do on private land, do you let the biggest stags go or let them have the opportunity to grow? Um, I know it con conflicts with, you know, what DPI say and what biosecurity rules and all that sort of thing say and, and you know, where do we go for, for deer management uh, in Queensland? Um, I know there's an, been an interesting uh, legal case in South Africa where I grew up around trout. Now, trout is an introduced species, just mm. as all deer, deer species are in, in Australia. 
Um, and they say that, so trout have been released into the public, into rivers, into the streams and rivers of South Africa. And it's become a huge tourism opportunity. A lot of people pay good money to go fishing for trout in some of these beautiful clear streams. Now, trout were introduced, but they've been there for over 100 years. And the South African government introduced a, a bill saying that they're introduced, they have to be removed from the ecosystem um, because they're an introduced species. But it was challenged in court and said that trouts have been here for over 100 years. Surely that means that they should be classed as a native species. And they actually, the, the, the fishermen won that court case. Hmm. Um, and so trout were allowed to stay in, in the rivers. And, you know, the fishermen are happy, obviously, because they can continue to, to fish for them. Now, here in Queensland, gift from the Queen, um, on Queensland's, you know, becoming uh, coming a state, where do we get, you know, where, what is your standpoint on on deer in, well, it's, in Queensland? It's on the it's on the coat of arms. Um, yeah, but I think that was only back from the seventies or the sixties. It's not like look, it's a good point, and the trout is a good point because trout is introduced here as well. Mm. Trout aren't, you know, mm. native to Australia, though, and there is a trout season. So why don't we have a deer season? So, so it's it's an well, introduced we, species. Well, we, did. we did. It's an yeah. introduced species and it's managed. And it seemed to be managed for the benefit of, you know, of of multiple benefits. So you the argument that you, you know, if it's feral, it's in peril, such and such, you know, that you know, the only way to manage a feral species is to remove feral species. Well, we've got examples where we don't do that. Trout's probably the best example where we don't do that. We have, you know, and though unfortunately there is people who want us to do that with trout, you know, however you remove fish from waterways. But so to me, there isn't a logical argument that says you couldn't do the same thing with deer. No, and it's, you know, there's so many different arguments that are similar. Um, which animal's life is worth more than another? You know, when you when you start talking about you know, can I squash a bug but not shoot a deer or, you know, whatever it is, is a cow more important than a horse and, you know, all of those sorts of things. It's, you know, for a lot of that, a, a, a life is a life and you should really treat them all quite equally, you know, in, in that yeah. respect. But uh, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the answer to your question, mate. My, my, um, my theory is that the world evolves you know, polar ice caps have moved apart. Land masses have broken into pieces. Mammals have moved around. Um, at what point in time was native native? You know, you, you've got to be putting a timestamp and, and, you know, exactly. a flag in the ground and saying everything that was here now is now considered native. And, and who makes that decision? You know, um, species evolve. Some take over. Look at humans. Um, you know, some are weaker and they and they disappear, and that's that's it. You know, that's just part of evolution. And yes, maybe we help some of that along as we go, um, because some things taste better than others, and we want them to hang around a bit longer, or they're more fun to chase in the bush. I don't know, but there has to be a point in time that it's been here long enough that it is part of our culture. Right. The deer were released here. Now I'm going to hazard a guess. They they were a gift, I guess. But I know in in New Zealand and certainly in other parts of the world, they were released for the settlers to have game to chase and food to eat, you know, mm -hmm. so that they could be out in the wilds and, and it was a source of food. Um, 
so, you know that that made us you know those those sorts of things are part of our history and exactly. you know just thinking that you can eradicate it just seems bizarre to me well the 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 uh, the kind of glaringly obvious evidence is there isn't a species that we have been able to eradicate okay there isn't one of every species that we've introduced to this country we haven't been able to eradicate any of them um from fire fire ants up we, we can't there isn't an example where we've eradicated introduced species um so the the eradication argument actually kind of doesn't really make any sense um and you know people go oh it's technology yeah we've thrown all sorts of technology at them you know we've thrown all it's very it appears to be very very difficult in a place this big and the, the only places where we've been successful is like little islands you know like where they're bound to get a rat population off an island or something like that but on mainland australia we haven't been able to do it the other question is or the other thing that kind of jumps into that is it's believed that the dingo were introduced by aboriginals when they when when they came to australia so there wasn't a dog here it came with the first aboriginals that crossed the land bridge to australia so it was introduced by humans the also the other uh, state or point of conjecture is that the tasmanian tiger wasn't the tasmanian tiger it was the australasian tiger and it probably became extinct on the mainland about 2000 years ago because of dingoes it couldn't compete with dingoes because hmm. it was a you know it, it was an older more prehistoric species marsupials have got all sorts of problems with them they don't breed as quickly there and so on so a more you know more generous species wiped it out and that's why it was in tasmania because that was its last stronghold so things kind of change humans change things by the fact that we you know you know that by the fact that we turn up we change things and it doesn't it doesn't matter which humans is humans it is we change things when we turn up so to me the idea of you know somehow you can kind of drop some kind of bomb and deer just disappear um is is fanciful we've got to i think there's a, a much better way to um approach it and my my personal opinion is that you know there's nothing worse than a sunk loss mm. if you're in business you know at, and at the moment our approach to deer is a sunk loss we can't get rid of them can't really control them so we throw money at them occasionally to try something about it and you look at you look at victoria as an example they've spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars on helicopter culls oh, mate, millions right to to take out a fraction of yeah. the volume that hunters take out every year hunters take out hundreds of thousands of those deer every year they're not even in the thousands really like okay they might be in the thousands they're probably not in the tens of thousands um like which argument would you run if you were trying to control a species? The well, free way that takes out hundreds of thousands or the really expensive way that doesn't? Well, there was a goat cull by helicopter not so long ago, and they worked it out there. It was about 20K per goat, literally. The, the cost of shooting those goats was work about, worked out about 20K. Twenty thousand. something like. Well, remember we were talking, Johannes. It was. It was. I think it was ten thousand bucks an hour to run a chopper to shoot things. Mm. I've shot about two hundred goats out of the state forest in New South Wales. So, 
I'm happy to write it. I'm happy to come to a price to say five thousand per head. I'd, I'd be happy to drop mid prices now, um, you know, and just send them the invoice. And and that's the thing, you know, what we're talking about here is, it's not that one answer is, and we know this from a, you know, it's funny when you're at work, you don't kind of think this way. You don't kind of go, this is a single solution. This is what you go, okay, what do we do to make this problem better? And you combine all sorts of different outcomes and you have all sorts of negotiations, sometimes heated, sometimes not, to try and come to a, a, a you know, a compromised solution that's going to provide the best answer. And to me, recreational hunting combined with, you know, professional um, approaches makes perfect sense it just mm. makes sense i mean we're mugs we pay yeah yeah we pay all the way through you know that 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 venison in my fridge you know if it comes from new south wales it's something like 500 bucks a kilo in real terms say, it's, you know? it's worth it's worth how many thousand an animal just like That's right. it, it, there is there you know it, there is no way i'm kidding myself that this is you know some kind of way cost saving it's not you know but be cheaper to drive out to a farm and buy a bull or a cow you know and <laughs> so we know that there's no cost saving we know that we're mugs um for doing it and they know that they're getting a free ride and actually not a free ride because we even pay we even pay for the ticket entry we even pay for a license mm. we do everything you know so we're, we're we're like we're like it's like a pub but we turn up with our own beer and we pay we pay the cover charge we get in and then we pull out our own beer bring our own seat you know serve ourselves and then and then thank them for the services <laughs> sitting inside their building so oh it's a great business model if you can get it, it is it's a fantastic business model um and that's it so recreational hunting you know, to me, it's it's a no-brainer. But it, the trouble is, what we're talking about here is, and the the, the you know the, the harsh reality is, we're not talking about a logical um, evaluation of of technique. What we're dealing with, we're 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 looking at people's illo ira illogical and irrational fear of things, guns, hunters, and stuff like that. And we're trying to spin a logical answer to their irrational fears. You know, mm. that's what it is. Because, you know, there always people go, oh, you can't hunt on public land. It's dangerous. Not where's according the to the stats. Oh, where's the stats? Where's the stats? Where's yeah. the stats? Yeah. You know, it, it's yeah. safer than bloody, what's the name? Lawn bowls. Probably more people oh, get yeah. hurt. People, more, yeah. more people get Less hurt playing barefoot bowls, you know. Than, than, hips than, get thrown. Um, and, um, probably a, 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 a timely call out to all of the Muppets that jump on the social media page when there's a, you know, some sort of uh, petition released and all they have to say about that petition is, oh, it didn't work last time. Why would I bother? Yeah. Like, just get on board with it. It's like three minutes of your life. Go in, put your name against it, keep us relevant, keep the noise up. You know, someone is doing all the hard work for you. Just don't bitch about it. Go and yeah. sign the damn thing exactly. and then wait for the next one to come out because there'll be another one and there'll be another one and just do your bit. If we had everyone that complained about not having access and everyone that had a bad thing to say about why well, we're doing this again, we'd have so many more numbers. Yeah, It'd absolutely. Be a much bigger voice to argue with. And um, oh, it just frustrates me when people do that. Anyway, I'm not going to say anything else about that. It just pissed me off. Um I did want to go back to Nundle, though, and, and talk about something really cool. So, um, and 
I've, I feel bad. I've forgotten these fellas' names. But while we're in the park, two fellas and a ute come screaming past me on the side of the road, hauled on the anchors, back back up and come and said g'day. They recognised us from the podcast. They had great stuff to say. Um, they, they took the time to stop and say hi. So um, hi back. Um, I've forgotten your names, but, you know, chuck it in the comments and let us know. It was really yeah, good reach to out to us, guys. Yeah, yeah, reach out. Definitely. It was great for you to stop and have a yarn and, and, and tell us what was going on. And um, uh, if you're not sure whether it was you, you were camped up at the farm. You told me that much. Um, that same afternoon, I think there were a couple of fellas over at Ponderosa, camped across the road from us, also came across and had a chat to John and I. Again, I've forgotten your names, but um, thanks for coming over. It was great to have a little chat. Shame you didn't share the campfire, but we'll let you off because it rained. Um, we weren't sitting out around oh. it anyway. <laughs> Just and, I'll, and I'll add to that one as well. So on my last evening, I bumped into two fellas in the middle of nowhere, right at the top of the Josh the was boat. one of them. Josh was one of them. Josh and his brother, absolutely. And I had a bit of a chat and shared a beer. Thanks for the beer, guys. I really appreciate it. Um, and we got talking about the podcast. And Josh actually reached out on Instagram, Instagram and actually sent a photo of the pig that I saw that, that, that day. So, yeah, you know, cheers for getting in contact, guys. It was really cool. I uh, hope you guys were successful. I know you were there for a few days. Uh, it was your first trip to the park, so I hope these podcasts, um, you know, are helpful and, and useful and give you guys a bit of, a, you know, give some tips. You'd never been to Severn before. I said check it out, watch the podcast. We'll give you some, you know, some good tips and tricks um, of heading up that way. So it just shows you that, you know, people are watching and starting to interact, and it's really cool when you're in the middle of a forest in the middle of New South Wales that people recognise you. Yeah, and uh, hopefully uh, with a little bit of luck, the next person that hits any one of us up in a state forest or or, or I guess anywhere that they recognise, uh, we should have a swag bag in the car and yeah, um, do with some merch firing yes. your way. So don't That's be shy. Right. Um, we'll, uh, we're friendly enough to talk to and uh, you never know what will happen after that. Um, I did have another fun encounter with um, – there was a, a group of um, Polish people. Oh, the foragers. Couple of, couple of, couple of couples. Um, and they were yeah they were foraging for mushrooms and they yeah. had been to the same location mm. for ten or so years in a row or more. I, I reckon I met them. I reckon you met them too because they I said met, yeah. ten or twelve years ago or more than once they've been invited to the ADA camp and shared a hunter's stew, you know a venison stew or something like that. So um, yeah. that was really interesting. Um, but uh, one of the ladies there and I was you know dressed up to go hunting. I had my rifle. I had the dog. We wanted straight over to where they were on the, my way through to, to where I was going to go hunting and stopped and had a really good chat with them. And one of the ladies, um, she wasn't concerned at all about the fact that I was standing in front of him with a rifle or anything like that, but she did want to stop and have a chat about um, hunting and, you know, whether it is the nicest thing, you know, or the nicest way to be getting your meat or, you know, taking an animal's life and, you know, whether it is the right thing to be doing or not. And she wasn't having a go or anything like that, but she wanted to have a fairly robust conversation, which was quite fun. Um, and I guess it, you know, to me, we had, you know, our own branding out there and, you know, we're also representing the Australian Deer Association and things like that. You're going to come across those sorts of people all the time. And uh, it was a good opportunity to have a, a, a good chat to someone like that. Um, and, of course, that, that conversation turned around a little bit. We did get to talking about how animals might die in the bush if it's not at the hands of a hunter. Because there aren't too many pleasant ways that that's going to happen. Animals don't just die of old age. And it's no. a it's a quite an easy conversation to have with somebody if you're in that situation. 
um, animal in the bush is going to die of what? Starvation, some sort of infection, yeah. or it's going to get seriously mauled by a predator, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 and die. All of those ways are pretty nasty ways to die. So if you're ever in a situation where you're talking to someone about that, it's quite a reasonable argument to have. Ask them if there is a, you know, if there is a, another way that an animal might die other than, you know, a very quick death at the hands of a hunter that might be more pleasant. And it, I can't think of any. Well, you just have to think of, I mean, if when we're driving around on this trip, every single, you know, every second tree had a signpost on it saying 1080 is about to be dropped poison. Oh, yeah. And from, you know, from the, I think it was the 1st of May, they were going to be bombing that place with 1080. Like, what is that going to do to, you know, some of the, some of the animals running around the forest? Like, it's a horrible death, that 1080. And, you know, for instance, I found up on the one one of the, the blocks that I well, one of the areas that I went shooting on, there was a, a dog that was that was there that had been shot. It was a big dog and it's gonna take down pretty much any animal in that forest. Um, but it had been shot. It ended its its life had been ended very, very quickly. Ten eighty is a slow and horrible death, and it's not just its death, it's you know, everything else that's running around. If you know, a pig's gonna come and feed on the carcass and it's gonna get poisoned. It's it's horrible. Why why would you want an animal to suffer like that? when you can end its life, you know, very, very quickly with a bullet. Mm. I think it just really shows the ethics behind hunting. We're not there to, we're not brutal blood, you know, brutal killers and bloodthirsty. We're, we're there and we're doing a very efficient job. Yeah. And like yeah. you say, you're picking it up, you're taking it with you. You're not just, yeah, not just out there shooting for fun. Yeah. No, absolutely not. Yeah. It, it's an interesting conversation because it, it I often feel that a, a big driver is, is the fact that, people are uncomfortable with the fact that you're comfortable with it. Mm. You know, they, they kind of project their uncomfortableness onto you. So they, they're wondering why you're comfortable. So, you know, and I almost, you know, if the person was a vegan, I think that the, the conversation is relevant. But, you know, we've and we've all experienced this, Someone who's, you know, happily chewing on a burger telling you, you know, you're a redneck for shooting a deer. Mm. And you kind of go, how the hell do you think that thing got to where you are? And I'll tell you something. It was a factory that there was no, no one patted that, you know, daisy before she got loaded up on the, you know, that's how not how that place works. That place is like some kind of Frankenstein monster's creation, you know. So don't for a second and just because you don't see it you know I think that, that does you know that doesn't that doesn't negate that it didn't happen it's just that you know you're kind of going oh look if i don't see it it does i don't have to think about it if i don't think about it, it didn't happen no it happens you've just mm-hmm. got it whereas i think from for for someone who hunts especially for someone who hunts and takes meat is you're You've reconciled the process. You understand the process. You far more understand the process of this will equate to that. And I, I even see the argument in fishing, you know, where if people go, oh, I only catch and release. And I go, well, that's okay, but you can't eat catch and release. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're either not going to eat that game and then, you know, and so you're going to take that approach. But what we do, hunting, there isn't catch or release. So you have to make that decision. You have to make it as you have to make a fundamental decision to be a participant. You cannot sit on the sides. Um, as soon as you shoot, 
you're now in, you know, the, the, the die is cast. You're in the game. And what happens is what happens. And I think some people are uncomfortable with that. The fact that you, you know, you can kind of go, yep, that's what I did. I know what I'm going to do. I practice at it. I, you know, I, I, I try to be better at it. I, I think about it. I plan it. I do all these things. I've got things in my pack to make sure when I do it that I can, you know, I can take meat. Then I'm going to sit mm -hmm. down and I'm going to cut that thing up. And yeah, there's going to be blood and it's going to have, you know, it's going to be warm and there's going to be organs and all that kind of stuff. Yep. Completely comfortable with that. Thank you. I think often they're projecting the fact that they're completely uncomfortable with it onto mm -hmm. you. But their comfort level is the meat comes vacuum packed. At a That's right. Period. That's their comfort yeah. level. But and I think, not... uh, you know, for some of those people, even when it comes out of the pack and it's got a bit of blood in the drip tray, that's bad. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you, so know, when, you know when you've got to buy your meat? There's a massive that, divide. And there's, yes. a little, there's a little absorbent pad underneath the meat to absorb the blood. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's to put off the squeamish people. Like, and, and look, if you're squeamish about, about blood, that's fine. When I put, I put venison on the table, it's not oozing blood everywhere. Of course not. It's food. It's, it, yeah, exactly. It's, food. it's a it's a beautiful piece of meat. It's lovely organic meat. So, and look, when I you know, um, at times I'm known to take the piss, and that's one of my favourite ones <laughs> is to kind of go like someone will say something like to me. I said I got this new rifle. It shoots them, and they kind of explode, and they all just land on the ground in these little vacuum seal packs, and we just pick them up and we to bring them home. <laughs> it's like mushrooming. Yeah. That's right. They you know just it just makes them happen, and that's it. And I that's what I often. When I'm, you know, I'm having these conversations with someone, and I'm thinking, maybe you're just projecting your uncomfortableness onto me, and wondering why I'm not uncomfortable. Like I'm, I'm not agreeing with you about how uncomfortable that is, because you know, I'm not. I reconcile it. Um, do you reckon? Do you reckon the abattoirs a nice, clean, beautiful? No, 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 no. Lovely place. I've been. I've been to an abattoir. I've yeah. Been, I went mm. for. I went for university to an abattoir. Oh, did you? Yeah. I went to the Dinmore avatar, abattoirs when we were at university because we were studying workflow. Mm. And that is a a, a, a world-class example of workflow. 1,500-odd cattle appear on trucks, and at the end of the day, they're all in little plastic yeah. <laughs> boxes and stuff. So, yeah, workflow. And it's, you know, it is, it's industrialised. Um, it's you know, it is an industrial activity, and some of the things there are, are, are remarkable. And you know, they're like someone invented them in a you know a horror movie, you know, stuff like that. But that's that's what that's how we get meat. Well, that's how you get, that's how you Super get meat. Efficient. That's how yeah. you get meat from. Yeah, that's right. It is an incredibly efficient. That's why we studied it. You know, it's an incredibly efficient process of of, of cattle to to food. Um, so yeah, as opposed to our our deeply personal yeah. approach, yeah, you know, you, like you say, very, you, very you very think about it, you plan it, you scour the internet, you're learning the behaviours of animals. Mm -hmm. Yes, you shoot them, but it's very quick and it's such a minute part yeah. of this. Then you have the world's task in front of you of taking yeah. out 50, the easiest, 50 easiest kilos. part is pulling the trigger. That's, that's right. The easiest part. Yeah, that's the easiest part. And we even lighten those triggers up to make it easier. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Right. We have, that's right. That's exactly right. You know, you actually say, you know, it's that old saying, now the work starts. Now the oh, work starts. Now the work right. starts. And it's it's interesting. And we'll do this as a part of the, the podcast, the process of um, taking that shot through to breaking that animal down and preparing it for the table in lots of different ways. 
because the thing that's really interested me in in the last little while is not just planning a hunt to go and take a deer, but planning a hunt to go and take a deer in a specific way for a specific meal purpose, because you can break them down to the traditional butcher's cuts that we all talk about, back straps, front legs, back legs, off you go, maybe the inside tenderloins. If you're good, a little bit of neck meat. But if you break them down in a different way, uh, who was it I was talking to the other day? Can't remember. If you take a backstrap off a fallow deer, Jono, mm-hmm. how many meals are you going to get off one fallow backstrap? Well, I like my steaks, so I, I cut them generally pretty fallow big. Yeah, yeah, fellow backstrap. I'll probably get four, maybe four, four to six meals over four backstrap. But yeah. depends what I'm doing. If I'm cooking steaks, if I'm making biltong, it depends what I'm doing with that. So sure. Well, I got, I, I got, I got six steaks off that bread I shot. And the red's a much bigger backstrap. Yeah, so, so, but so, that, yeah. but they're not, they're not like little. Petite. Oh, no, 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 yeah, no, no. But, but I, I guess, what, I guess what I'm saying is. You could take that backstrap. You could cut it into two and have and and have two nice roast portions. If you yeah, want to do that. So, yeah. I, so I, I could take that, as yeah. you say, I could take that backstrap, cut it in half, and then quite often I I then take that half of the backstrap and I'll actually cut it out and fold it out into a big piece and then stuff it and roll it back up into a roast. Oh or yeah. Make, yeah or, I right. up, or I make built up. I make steak. Guess, or, yeah. Or or or, or, or there's, there's loads of things you can do. The yeah. the thing that I hadn't considered until uh, it was Jason I was speaking to the other day. Hmm? He said he started butchering his animals differently. You can either take the backstraps off the animal, or you could do what you do when you when you butcher a sheep and you take that midsection out, turn it into chops. Yeah, you got twenty six chops. Yeah, Not a lot of chops. Thirty or, or, or a rib roast or also yeah, that's right. Yes, it's just yeah. the way the yeah. way you prepare it gives you various different ways of eating it. Almost um, definitely. Yeah. So. Um, Part of what we will do is go through that process of breaking it down a different way. So you can think about how you might butcher that animal in the field. It's less convenient to take out a midsection with all the ribs. Right? It's it's harder to carry than it is a couple of backstraps. Most of the time we leave a lot of that meat behind, but there are reasons why you shouldn't do it. And we'll get into that, which is interesting. Oh, look, but for me with ribs, so I, I we as a family eat a lot of mincemeat. I do a lot of mince. So I actually take the ribs, I debone the ribs, I take the meat in between every single rib out and I chuck it through the grinder. In the field? No, no, but I'll do that at home. But quite often I'll I'll do that in the field in the field. I'll yeah. actually debone every single rib if I don't want to carry it, or I'll cut the rack of ribs off. But I take all the meat off the ribs. There's some good meat on there. Um, and I chuck it through the mincer and I make mincemeat. That means I don't have to go when I'm making bolognese, if I'm making nachos, if I'm doing whatever, I don't have to go and buy mince. Um, yeah. So I take all of that. Or no, you can have the the twenty five thousand dollar kilo mints <laughs> that comes off that one red deer you got this year. Yeah, yeah. So, well, well, I I usually so there's there's absolutely you're absolutely right, and I think in a way I I think about this a bit. I think in a way we're a bit kind of well, it's not snobbish, but we we're certainly not breaking that animal down like we had to feed the family with it. No. You no. know, we're, it's not like that. We're not going, okay, this, if we don't do, you know, I have to stretch this as far out as I can or we won't eat. We're not We're not doing that. We've got that luxury is, is this, in a way, this is supplementary. I like to make it fairly significant supplementary, but it is supplementary. So, but you're right, you know, it, that I think that would, fundamentally change how because what you would do is you know it would be well first thing you would do is you do a lot more organ harvest wouldn't you 
you go, okay, let's, you know, you, you get the organs out and you go, okay, well, there's, there's meals there and then there's meals there and there's, and it would just come and you would do what, what traditionally people would do is, you know, there's a reason why pork bellies, you know, you know, it's, it's the thing nowadays because it's, you know, but once upon a time that, you know, that was just an, another, another cut, if you know what I mean, it was another way of preparing meat, you know, you do all sorts of things. So you're dead right. How you, how you think about the end product certainly starts there at the beginning. And what I've learned, for instance, um, with hunting in Brisbane Valley is that I, my, my calf ridge struggles with meat straight off the deer. I've I got, got a nice new calf ridge that's got a really, a really accurate thermometer in it and stuff like that. And when I'm up there, it'll be at, you know, one degree put that in there it'll jump up to 17 to 20 and it's struggling so i've started to esky first just then the cartridge you know just to try and cool it down i i this time of year um i take i skin in the field because i want to get the heat out i skin in the field and especially things like hind quarters i'll i'll, I'll debone or take or leave the you know i'll leave bone there because again that retains heat so i'll try and get that meat in a way that it cools down as quickly as possible. So I'll skin in the field. So with my, um, you know, uh, game bags, I bought some more because I use a couple of them like I work on them. Hmm. And the other thing I try to do is uh, every single deer hair that I can leave in the field means doesn't end up in my kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) So I try to be as clean as possible out in the field. So when I put it in the bag, there's as least amount of hair on it as possible. And I mean, you know, fine hairs, it's skinned and it's either deboned or it's missing a major bone and just try and get that cooled down. Yeah, it's not hard to tunnel bone something out or just bone, just bone in the field. It's not That's a bad it. idea. Except and the other thing is I, I'm not going to use that bone, so I don't need to carry it. You know, well, it's bone brothing. No, you see, well, you see, I like some cuts on bones. I like bones. The bones, yeah. Yeah, so I generally, I'll try and um, I'll try and gut the animal as quickly as possible. Obviously, that helps with the cooling process. If necessary, skin it. Um, I like to get it into the in, into quarters or as big cuts as possible, and then into the esky, get it chilled down. I don't use ice. I use block um, because the, the, I don't want the water going into the meat. Or if I do have ice, I'll keep it out of the water. Yeah. Um, and then when I get it home, I like to get it into a, a separate fridge. I know Ian, you're the same. And I'll leave it for a week. I don't touch it. Put it in the fridge and let it, let it mature a little bit. I've got a separate fridge now that I keep just for when I'm not hunting, it's for the beers. When, I'm, when I am hunting, it's for meat. Um, and I just get that meat chilled down. And then I'll slowly start breaking it down further, take it off the bone, do whatever I'm doing. But I like to keep mine on the bone where possible. I think, A, it matures better on the bone. I think it's easier to handle um it's more difficult to transport yes but i've got a big esky and i try and keep cold i bone um, out i bone out if i've got big carries yeah yeah there's, oh, no, there's just it's no doubt been, about it the oh, bones it, go but i like the bones I, you know i like i, I like know. to bake those bones and bone broth to get the marrow out I, I'm, I'm starting Absolutely. to dive deeper into the, the the animal you know you talk about all this effort that you go to to you know the travel and the money and everything that goes to it and then you knock an animal whack the back straps out take the hindquarters and walk away mm-hmm. What a waste! Like, there's so much more you can do with that animal if only you give yourself the time, yeah. the preparation. Yeah. Which leads me to the 
last, well, not the last thing, but one of the things that I was saying to the guys at Nundal, um, and something that was said to us when we went over to New Zealand on a trip by a guide that we had was, it's just dark. It's exactly the same as it is in the daytime. It's just there's no light. That's the boogeyman is not going to jump out and get you. There's and you're armed anyway. With the dark. Yeah, so when it gets yeah. dark, just chill out for a second yeah. and then yeah. get back to work. Yeah. You don't have to rush home in the daylight. You don't have to waste half an animal because it might get dark or you might get wet. Go prepared. Be ready to stay out for the night. And, you know, you'll get back. Imagine if you got back tomorrow with all of that animal taking all of that time and effort to do it. He'll remember that so much better anyway. So um, some of those little things, I think it's great to be able to talk to young hunters about. Yeah, the, the one thing, the, the only caveat of that is that, you know, depending on where you hunt, heat is the challenge. Yeah, sure. sure. And sometimes you've got to go, okay, I've got to, I've got to approach this like I'm on a, I am on a clock now. Um, so I've got to, I've got to be, you know, if I can, if I can do this in six cuts, then I'm going to do it in six cuts, and then I yeah. can come back to it later. That being the case, even in the heat, I'll, I'll, um, I'll pop the gut on anything because uh, it, it breaks down quicker. So oh, yeah. even even if I take, you know, even if it's hot, I'm going okay. I'm going to take four quarters, hind quarters, and back straps. I'll still pop the gut on that just to get the heat out. Well, you know, and from not a, the gut bag, but you mean to, you, you mean you take the guts out of the animal? Yeah. Well, I'll just, I'll just even open it up. I'll just open up with yeah. the heat. It's the easiest way to get that heat out, but also from a hygiene perspective, because That's right. obviously you you need to get those stomach contents out of there. You need to really get all of that. And it's, and I find as well if if um you know you've damaged the heart or the or the lungs there's all that blood and it starts pooling that's going to start congealing and going off pretty quickly because yeah. it's it's so warm in there you need to get that out um yeah. but i agree i think back to like when we were in the pelaga mark and we shot those goats like literally the moment you shoot them you've got to act quickly you've really that's got to it yeah it, it's you different know, there's, there's flies there's everything else you mm. literally want to get get them opened up as quickly as possible and get that meat off because at the end of the day, we want to try and recover as much of that meat as we can. Yeah. Okay, there's your statement there. That's if you're it. trying to recover all of that meat, sure, because you can get the back legs, front legs and back straps out of there in 10 minutes. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Forget your calling down. I've got the cuts. I'm gone. That's it. You're wasting some. Yeah. And when you're in, when you're in, when you're hunting, you know, ferals and state forests, then you start thinking along those lines. Well, we're going to get a couple of goats this week. Do we only take the choice cuts? And if it's hot, it's 35, 40 degrees outside. Generally, that's what you're going to do. Yeah. But when yeah. it, when it comes to a deer, I'm not wasting any of that. No, but I think I think as you mature, then as a hunter, I think I've been through that process where where I'm I'm happy to take the choice cuts. But going back to my statement, it's only it's just dark. It's just hot. Yeah. I mean, if you're prepared for the heat. And you can deal with that for a little bit longer. I think so, I think you become a far more patient hunter yeah, as the years pass and, and yeah. you just and deal with those conditions. So what I've done with especially with goats in warmer weather is I'll shoot it, I'll get the head off, I'll get the guts out, and I get it into a game bag as quickly as possible. Um that's going to help with the cooling process. Um and it depends on the size of the goat, obviously, but I then get that into an esky and get that chilled. Once the sun goes down and it's a little bit cooler and the flies are pissed off then I will go and break that animal down further. Mm. But once I've got that into a big game bag, I can get that closed off. It's not yeah. I've got no risk of it getting fly blown. So that's what I generally do. Um, yep. But if it's a huge belly, um, you, you're generally not going to be able to get them inside an esky. Um, but if it's a smaller one, a good meat animal, that's what I'll do. I'll keep them whole, just get the head off, get the guts out, you know, take off the four, you know, the, the four quarters of the, of the legs, 
um, so that I can get him into a game bag, close that game bag off. He can then chill out in an esky for until dark. I can hang him up and skin him, skin him, and I don't have to worry about the flies. That's that's generally what I'll do. We did in so with the we actually kind of first developed it in Southern, but we when we started hunting pillager. So you're hunting there in the midsummer. It's forty degrees. So yes, you know, you're on you're on the you just you've got to function quickly. So we used to rip off legs and back straps, take them back to camp, stick them on ice, and then maybe like on the second afternoon, we'd have this big production run where everyone would get in and we basically process the hell out of everything. We So you would just bring it back and put it on ice and then two days later, we'd process it. Um, and that really improved that whole process. So we we wouldn't worry about it. We just said the, 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 the task here at hand is get major cuts off on ice, just wait, till you know the right time and then process it and that worked really well for us and um one of the things that helps with that is actually having a larger side if you if you i always call them poachers knives but if you want to get legs off really quick it's actually handy to have a, a, a knife with a bit of size to it and just kind of ring, you kind of ring ring them off and bang they come straight off and so that's i've and that was really developed from 10 years of hunting in that heat just going okay we've got to move quick um, and yeah and we've taken whole goats out of the pillager because simon in fact's got a 200 liter esky that he got specifically that not not the biggest goat but we could say okay that goat will fit in his esky hole and we've done that we've taken it and dropped it in there skinned it dropped it in two Good days chill. later yeah broke Good it chill. down because he wanted he wanted to he wanted to do like rib rack and stuff at home because he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a chef, so he wanted to do that. So we we plan to do that. But we actually, that was actually like okay, we're going to do this. So we said okay, so what kind of goat we want? Okay, we want a nanny. How big we want it? About this big. And so we looked for that animal, got it, necked it. Okay, straight in, and straight on ice. Good. Okay. I think we're nearly at time. Did you want to mention one other thing? Poor old Frank. Mm. Poor old Frank. Frank makes the best mead in the world. Oh, is it? Mead. It was good. It was good. Oh, okay. yeah, good. He bought some amazing mead. So, um, I don't know, Frank, I'm not going to give you details away because I want the next bottle of mead that's coming out of the patch. But it does a great job. I've got a bottle here. We'll share it. I'll save it and we can share it together. It's mm. just outstanding. Uh, but poor old Frank, it was with us nearly the whole time. He went home a couple of days early, um, had a great time with us, and left Nundle Forest Way, and I think in the last couple of minutes, uh, driving down the road, got the face plant of a doe in the side of his car. The cost of oh. So he did get it. No, it ran off. But it left it a nice off. dent in the side of his car for his, for his time and effort. And uh, um, we feel for you, Frank. Never That's mind, disappointing. Mate. <laughs> so um anyway i think we'll call it quits on that good chat okay. good season yeah. like learned a lot did a lot um shame we didn't pull some more numbers in but that, that's hunting at the end of the day Absolutely. yep uh still a few more months of deer oh, i got we're winter hunting now yeah that's right yeah we'll get the bachelor herds okay guys go on yep. catch you, Thanks, time. Gents. Thank See you. you next time See ya. yeah